questions, questions, and even more questions. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. He's got questions, he's got answers. Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He's got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Well, this is the last episode of Ask Science Mike that will ever be recorded in my home in Tallahassee, Florida. We've sold the place. We're moving out. There's boxes everywhere. So this week, I'm answering questions from my patrons, every single one they asked, actually, with no uh, awareness of what they are before the show starts. So this is going to be kind of like a live show, but different. And let's get it started. Oh, I have never felt so discombobulated and disorganized. <laughs> We're in the middle of a move, and as soon as I get done recording this, I'm going to pack up my microphone and my desk and put it all in boxes. We're headed to L.A., uh, leaving Tallahassee, where I've lived since I was four years old. Uh, so this is a really big deal for my family. And uh, if you've been listening to the show, it's been really hard to get a proper uh, schedule put together, uh, but I didn't want to do dead air, so we've had a couple of, of kind of fireside chat episodes, and this show is going to be uh, questions again, so it's not just my thoughts on reader mail or feedback or whatever, but with a little twist, these questions all come from my patrons on Patreon, and I'm going to answer them all off the top of my head without looking at them first. So I don't know what's coming in this show. Uh, there may be adult themes. So for those of you who listen with your kids, be careful. I don't know what's coming. Because of that, I'm also not going to research the answers. So take any figures or facts that I put out there with a grain of salt because they haven't been fact-checked as is the normal protocol on Ask Science Mike. Next week, I'll probably do something different for the podcast. I'm uh, giving the sermon for the, both services at 9.30 and 11.15 at my church on July 16th. My church is Good Samaritan United Methodist in Tallahassee. So I'll probably put the sermon up as next week's show because uh, I have some thoughts on this city and my church and what it means to be a person who follows Jesus today. So that's what I'll be talking about. If you're in or around the Tallahassee area, I'd love to see you at either one of those services. Uh, you can go to AskScienceMike.com. You can go to Events, and that will give you all the information you need uh, to get there. I do want to mention again uh, that I've got other things coming up. We've got three liturgist gatherings in Los Angeles, Boston, and Seattle. And I'm also doing a UK tour. So again, just go to AskScienceMike.com, click the Events tab, and you can get information about all of that. But I'm, I suspect this is going to be a long episode with so many questions, so I'm going to go ahead and stop yapping about announcements and start answering questions that I've never seen. Okay, first question comes from Andrew, and the question is, are you going to find a church in L.A.? or just going to float around, float being in quotations, probably a reference to the fact that I love to float in Century 
deprivation tanks as a form of meditation. I'm definitely going to find a church in LA, Andrew. That's a big part of my faith. I'm a church guy. Uh, in all likelihood, I'll be at a Methodist church. The United Methodist Church means a lot to me. Uh, the theology of the church is meaningful to me. The practice of the church is even more meaningful. Uh, so yeah, that doesn't mean like I think other denominations are are less Christian or whatever. As you know, I'm a mega, mega universalist. Uh, but a church is important to me and to my family. So probably the first Sunday I'm there, I'll try a church and we'll see where we can get. Sean asks, what advice would you give someone who is fully deconstructed but unable to transition out of super conservative ministry work for the immediate future? First, Sean, give yourself some grace. You're in a tough spot. That, that's a really hard place to be. I get emails from people all the time who have gone through a faith transition and a theological change, perhaps even transitioned out of faith altogether, but get their paycheck in an environment where you can't talk about that. So in the short term, my advice would be to keep your mouth shut <laughs> and keep making the paycheck you need to survive in the very short term. But this is not like a sustainable thing. This is not a, a career arc you can remain on. So as you work through what you believe, and uh, it's, I think it's relatively unlikely you'll end up where you were. So it's time to figure out what else you would like to do to make a living. And this is tough. Um, but you probably have some skills that can be used in a non-religious context, right? Organizational skills, media skills, whatever the church has equipped you to do, you can probably find a company that would appreciate those skills. Or you can transition to a faith community that is more palatable and more open to where you are. And But I think if you've kind of gone through this, this process where you, you, you've, you've gone through this faith transition as a person on staff, it'd probably be really healthy to not be on staff at church for a while. If you go to church, it'd be great to just be a member. You probably have a lot of trauma. You have a lot of emotional decompression to do and processing. Uh, so my advice is protect the paycheck. Um, and then once you transition your income to some other source, and believe me, I know that is far easier said than done, uh, then you can start talking to anyone you want about how you feel. Now, in the in the meantime, while you're still working at the church, you, knew, you need to find a handful of people you can speak openly with. Uh, you're going to feel less lonely, you're going to feel less isolated, and you're going to start a process of emotional recovery. Uh, and frankly, a therapist is not a terrible idea. Not a Christian counselor, but a therapist who is comfortable with you processing your emotions without leading you towards some specific theological destination. And many Christian counselors do that, and, and, and I appreciate their work. But my, my point is, if you go to the wrong person of faith as your counselor, they're, they're going to try to rush you back to some reconstruction of your theology that may ultimately not be helpful. Okay, here's another Sean, spelled a different way who asks, what are the largest theological differences between the Southern Baptist Church and the United Methodist Church? Love a fellow United Methodist. Wow. Uh, I should be an expert in this, having been a former Baptist and a current Methodist. Let me think for a second. 
well, baptism is a big one. Baptists believe in uh, baptism as a sacrament, a sacrament, just like Methodists, but baptism must happen via immersion, full immersion in water, whereas Methodists sprinkle. Uh, Baptist baptism also is called believer's baptism. Someone has to make a conscious choice to become a Christian, to accept Christ, to be baptized, whereas through provenient grace, uh, Methodists will do infant baptisms. So sprinkling infants versus dunking adults, that's a big difference. Baptists uh, are real scripture alone folks. Methodists use a quadrilateral of scripture, tradition, reason, and experience to understand God. So uh, the quadrilateral is not a Baptist idea. Let's see. Um, Oh, Methodists practice an open communion. Anyone can walk into a Methodist church and take communion. Uh, Baptists have a closed communion. They they say you need to be a believer in order to uh, take communion or in Baptist parlance, the Lord's Supper. Um, Methodists have a church hierarchy, a central church structure with bishops who put pastors in congregations, and Baptist churches are all autonomous. They join into a convention, but none are under the convention's authority, and uh, Baptist denominations select and hire and indeed fire their ministers. Uh, Baptists have the eternal security of the believer. They believe that once you're saved, you're always saved, that you're salvation. You can't lose your salvation. Um, but Methodists believe that someone can choose to be saved, but they can also fall from grace. They can stop following God and lose their salvation. That's all I can remember off the top of my head. I'm sure there's more, <laughs> but that's that's the best I can do uh, without any prep. Qantas asks, do you believe all of the things recorded in the Gospels are mostly accurate or are there embellishments to further the lore of Christ in relation slash contrast to the Roman rulers? I think this idea of an objective, accurate recording of history is a modernist thing. I think pre-enlightenment certainly History was indivisible from narrative and social identity, and I, so so that's that's not unique to the Bible. That's all ancient texts are that way. So to understand scripture, I understand that an author was speaking to an audience with an agenda. Always, every single line of scripture, specific author, specific audience, specific agenda or agendas, and that many of the um, events are filtered through. A social identity and an attempt to identify uh, with the norms of the audience. So some of the Gospels seem to speak more to a Jewish audience and include more alliteration and illusion. No, just illusion. Alliteration is the same <laughs> same uh, word over and over at the beginning of uh, words in a phrase. Uh, avoid alliteration always. Sorry have allusions and references to the Old Testament much more, whereas other Gospels seem to be written more towards a Greco-Roman or Gentile audience, and they include allusions to faith norms and cultural norms of those groups. So I think it's a it's kind of a strange question to ask. It's a modernist question to say, are the things in the Gospels mostly accurate? Because that is a modernist slant on history. And that's not what the Gospels were intended to be. 
They are meant to describe the divinity of Jesus. And they also weren't written by the disciples of Jesus. They were written by folks later on, according to most historians. Great question. Ryan Moore asks, I hear Pete Holmes talk a lot about taking mushrooms, DMT, etc. What are your thoughts and the science on the potential benefit or harm in taking psychedelics? Related, I'd ask the same question about marijuana use. Boy, I get these questions a lot, and I, um, I'm i never sure how to answer them. One, because uh, most of these substances are Schedule 1 in our current legal framework. So regardless of what any studies might say about their benefits or detriments, uh, you can go get in serious legal trouble for using or possessing these substances. I grew up in the D.A.R.E. generation, so I thought that uh, these drugs were all extremely bad with no benefit whatsoever. But uh, as I read more clinical literature, uh, there's some really interesting things. Psilocybin, which is the main active component in mushrooms, appears to have some pretty profound effects on the brain, many of which are beneficial, um, creates a state of high connection between all the parts of the brain. And this can cause emotional processing. People can find a therapeutic effect on anxiety and depression from psilocybin. They can have an increased sensitivity and uh, increased sense of personal happiness for like 14 months following a single dose of psilocybin. And it's not um, physiologically addicting like uh, some other substances are. So it's interesting that psilocybin, and indeed LSD, which uh, has also in clinical studies been shown to have some benefits for the brain, uh, it's interesting to see these things grouped in with you know, uh, cocaine or heroin uh, in the same substance control categories when it seems like there are legitimate medical uses for psychedelics. You know, now, now, if you take them too often, uh, they can be bad for you. Um, but as, as an occasional thing, they, they appear to not be uh, dangerous so long as dosage is controlled. You, many people, the problems they have with these substances is they take too much or take it too often, which is why I think th- this is something that should in- involve not only research but medical consultation. Um, so I, I do question our legal framework about those substances. DMT, often called the spirit molecule, uh, there's much less clinical data about DMT. So I would I would be incredibly reticent to weigh in on its benefits or harms as it has not been widely studied. Uh, marijuana, uh, I think we all know at this point that the science is pretty clear as a pain medicine This is a a superior alternative to opioids and that it has great medicinal effects. Any of these things, in fact, anything smoked is unhealthy. Wood smoke from a fire is is bad for you, is carcinogenic, uh, according to experts I've talked to with research that they cite. So uh, smoking marijuana is, is not good for you. Vaping these substances is questionable. Ingesting them is probably the safest way to go about it. But again, they're all illegal at the federal level in the United States. So you are violating federal law if you consume these substances. I would like to see those laws changed. I I completely support the legalization of medical marijuana. 
I think prohibition is a bad strategy in general. Uh, so I certainly want to see recreational drugs of all t- kinds decriminalized. Um, but I'd actually like to see recreational marijuana legalized if we're going to have cigarettes and alcohol legal because those substances are more dangerous in my estimation. And psychedelics, the ones we've studied, uh, I'd like to see them decriminalized as well and at least give scientists and the medical community the opportunity to study more deeply the impacts that these substances have on the brain and the body, okay? So today, probably premature (laughs) to recreationally consume this stuff, but I certainly would support changing the laws to allow research. Okay, so it looks like we are going mature themes on this one, folks. Josh asks, what do you believe the long-term effects of same-sex relationships will be on generations to come? I'm accepting and affirming of people that identify as homosexual and that are in same-sex relationships, but a recent conversation with a friend has me thinking about the generational impact and what, if any, responsibility our generation should take for that. Gosh, I don't know. Um, I think people who prognosticate about the future on social issues uh, are almost universally wrong. (laughs) Uh, I hope the generation impact is a lot less shame, suicide, and depression among people of differing gender identities and sexual orientations and a larger more broad cultural acceptance of those folks. Interracial marriage was once extremely taboo, not that long ago. And helter-skelter, the world didn't end as society learned to accept those relationships. Let's focus on loving each other and health. And I think that's far better. I think, I think heterosexual Infidelity faces a much greater threat to family structures and and to marriage than same-sex marriage, certainly. Of course, you listen to the show, you know I already think that. Great question, Josh. Matthew asks, could you do another book episode after you move, perhaps as you're unpacking? I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, we'll do another book episode um, next time with fewer books discussed more deeply. James asks, as a person of faith who loves neuroscience... What does it mean to you when people use phrases like God's will or God's thoughts or God knows, etc.? Does God not not have consciousness? Or, in other words, how can we approach having conversations about God's will in a way that is helpful, meaningful, and authentic? Uh, James, I hold my understanding of God's will or consciousness or agency extraordinarily loosely. In terms of you know how I epistemologically understand God, I'm more like a pantheist or a panentheist, and yet I deal with this this situation where I experience God in a very personal and intimate way, uh, and I don't try to resolve that dichotomy. I simply because of that I respect people who are uh, skeptical of God's awareness or intervention in reality or even God's existence as a being or even a ground of being. Uh, but I do allow myself to participate in spiritual experiences that involve a personal God and to discuss that with others who also um, have those experiences. 
so how do I do that? How, how do I talk about God's will? I meet people where they are when they talk about God and respect their right to relate to God in that way as I expect people to do so with myself. I'm very reticent to try to correct people on their personal experiences or understandings of God. I save any you know, discussions like that for when harm is happening to people on earth today or potential people in the future. But if someone's, if I think when we talk, when we talk about God, everything we say is metaphor. So I'm not going to take someone else's metaphors away from them. And I'm comfortable speaking in the context of someone else's metaphor, if that makes them more comfortable, because I just, I just hold loosely all my ideas about God. Judson asked, does it take less, more, or the same amount of energy to climb stairs two at a time compared to one? Um, well, the pace you use to climb stairs matters. The faster you climb them, the more energy you use in Einstein's relativity. The faster you move towards something, uh, the further away it is. <laughs> uh, because it takes more energy to get there, right? So if I... If I walk slowly to my neighbor's house versus I sprint, then I have to use a lot more energy because I'm crossing a greater distance. It's really strange. So I would imagine taking stairs two at a time is going to increase your rate of ascension and therefore going to increase your energy output. Plus, I'm going to think your biomechanical efficiency goes down because you're going past a stride length that is efficient. So... I'd love to hear a physicist or a, gosh, who would know, uh, exercise scientist weigh in here. Uh, but I'm going to say two at a time is takes more energy. Could be wrong. Uh, Eric asks, why peace, love, entropy? What does each one of those mean to you? Kurt Cobain signed his letters, peace, love, empathy. And I just thought that was really cool. Um, and, uh, so entropy is kind of a word play on empathy to make my email signature sciency. I do peace and love are important to me. God is love. Uh, shalom is peace. So that's those, those, those both represent my faith. Entropy is, um, what physics says the universe is moving towards. That's the kind of the immutable law of physics. The one thing that uh, causes a temporal movement to any physical equation is that entropy must always increase in a closed system. So that's a physical reality. So my email signature uh, and my what I've signed letters, how I sign books, is how do we reconcile shalom peace with a universe moving towards entropy? And love is that fulcrum. Great question, Eric. Okay, Josiah asks... How do I still believe in Jesus when he's recorded as saying things that don't reflect reality, i.e. healing, asking and receiving, telling his disciples he'd return before their generation passed away, etc. You talk to friends, Josiah, and you realize that um, human testimony is generally unreliable. All human testimony is generally unreliable. Even when people try to tell the truth with no attempt to deceive, or meticulously attempt to relay only facts. Our track record in doing so is terrible, 
and the Gospels were written by people. Jesus didn't write the disciples. There was no stenographer. There was no voice recorder. These are people generally telling stories they heard from someone else who was there or maybe someone who heard from someone who heard from someone who was there. It's a big game of telephone. That doesn't mean Jesus wasn't a historical figure. This is true of every figure in ancient history. So, you know, it's it's not a big leap to believe there was a real person in first century Palestine named Jesus whose life and teachings led to Christianity. Now, the idea that that person was the incarnate son of God who rose from the dead, now that is a much tougher thing to believe based on historical evidence. And at that point it becomes like, does this story matter to you? Does this resurrection matter to you? Does the idea that God is love and that God dwells within humanity, is that important to you? If so, how you believe that is you immerse yourself in a social context where people believe it. And over time, your brain will do the rest for you. That's <laughs> just the social science of the thing. Uh, Jordan asks, what do we know about the origin of life? I understand how life as we know it could evolve from a single cell, but I get stuck on how we get from basic matter to reproducing cells. Thanks. You're asking about something called a biogenesis, like where does life come from? Um, we don't know exactly. We do see in our own solar system that uh, several moons have complex organic molecules naturally occurring. And Mars does on occasion as well. So we understand that the soup required to get very close to life happens. It's happened multiple times in our solar system. How specifically you have that tipping point, nobody knows exactly. Jeremy England has a fascinating theory that's based on mathematics that many people are interested in, but that's an unsolved question in the sciences. Uh, that doesn't, by default, mean that religion is correct on its claims. One, there's a lot of competing claims among faith on where life came from, and we have no way to you know, choose between them. Uh, it simply means it's a thing we don't know yet in science. And that's the strength, not the weakness of science, to be clear about what we don't yet know. Paul asks, first, if you haven't read the book series, The Three-Body Problem, I cannot recommend it enough. I'll check it out, thanks. Second, in the last century or so, it seems our futures are built upon the science fiction of the past, so it seems reasonable, if not probable, that we are now either building the projection of reality, AR, VR, nanotechnology, genome mapping, molecular computing, etc., or we're already in it. With that in mind, why would we construct reality with faith, belief, hope, free will, pain, suffering, murder, hate, etc. at all? Is it a need of human existence like Agent Smith talks about in The Matrix? Okay, that's a pretty deep philosophical question. Um... Our universe is moving towards entropy. Our evolutionary heritage is that resources are scarce. 
suffering comes from by biological systems that are telling us the way things are right now aren't great. Try something else. But in some way, the struggle to survive makes us grow, literally. Uh, if you never suffer, if you, if you live a completely pain-free existence, well, it's not possible, right? Because I hate physical exercise. Hate it. Hate it. I hate the feeling of my muscles burning. And, uh, but when you don't exercise at all, your, your muscles atrophy and you get weaker and then you start to have chronic pain, right? So the question is like, what kind of pain do you want to have? Do you want to go through necessary suffering to grow and be stronger? Or do you uh, avoid suffering at all costs and then suffer anyway? I also don't know like how much, how, how much ag- our agency influences the formation of society because it's an emergent phenomenon with so many contributing factors that I'm not sure we can actually completely create a world with our intention, even a, 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 a mimetic world in our minds. So I tend to be much more simple in my thinking. Contribute the best that I can. And then let, let the chips fall where they do. Andrew asks, how can my wife and I as white people combat implicit racial bias in ourselves when we live in a very homogenous city in Oregon with very few non-white people around us? I should also mention that we are pretty big introverts. Okay, start by uh, changing your media habits. See if you can start watching uh, television shows and movies which a majority of the characters on screen aren't white. Uh, I particularly enjoyed the Netflix show Sensate because of the remarkably diverse casting and incredible acting and dynamic story and great directing and cinematography, etc. Curate your media habits. Expose your brain to new things. Train it. Um, That'll help with implicit racial bias. And then how can you combat it um, among other people? Have the conversations about why it matters to diversify media habits. And hopefully that will lead to conversations over time about how to dismantle white supremacy in your community. That's how progress happens. But with your dollars, support media that uh, supports people of color. April Williams asks, My mother was recently diagnosed with early onset dementia. I've noticed, along with struggling to remember certain words at times, that she has a very hard time picking up on verbal cues. For example, she seems to take what people say very literally instead of understanding when people are teasing her or joking around. She has always been a fun-loving person who likes to laugh a lot. So observing this change in her hits hard. What's going on in the brain during the onset of dementia or Alzheimer's? Are there stages like grief that a person passes through? Any recommendations for further study on how to support a person going through this? Thanks, Mike. Oh boy, um... I haven't deeply studied dementia or Alzheimer's at all. First, and I'm sorry that you're going through this. Uh, I, I have experienced uh, that with loved ones myself, and it is very, very challenging. 
And I wish I would have seen your question on a normal episode of Ask Science Mike where I could research it. In fact, that's what I'll do. I'll come back to this one <laughs> on a normal show. I don't want to freelance this and mess it up. It looks like someone or a couple people replied to your thread on Patreon. Uh, so check that out, and they may have resources there. And uh, otherwise, um, listen back. I'll cover this question on a later show. Billy Walters asks, what is the theoretical maximum limit on the amount of wood <laughs> a woodchuck could chuck with a pre-existing assumption that a woodchuck is capable of chucking said wood? I guess that would depend on the mass of the woodchuck and its muscular efficiency in the act of chucking. And I, I don't know that. Those are variables I don't have. So I can't perform the calculations. John asks, how common slash severe of a problem is household mold? The info out there strikes me as alarmist, but I have, have a hard time knowing how worried to be about this potential problem in the walls or basement. John, I have no idea. I haven't studied household mold. Uh, Amy asks, why is it considered a kindness if a person corrects someone else's math error but when a person corrects someone's grammar error, it is considered to be an asshole move. <laughs> Using the wrong word spelling or pronunciation is just as wrong as saying that 2 plus 2 equals 5. So why does it carry a different stigma? I don't think there's any personal expression in the axiomatic discipline of mathematics. Um, I think there's a lot of personal expression in grammar. Grammar evolves and changes over time, as language does at a fundamental level. Mathematics is uh, axiomatically fixed. That's probably where that comes from. I don't know, though, for sure. Aaron asks, do you think gravity waves will all have any impact on theology or the way we view God? Also, if you read so much, how can you don't put the books on Goodreads? Uh, one, yeah, I think gravity waves could have an impact as they have the potential to let us uh, directly sample information uh, going back to the, the moment of the Big Bang. Uh, they're going to further deepen and solidify our understanding of cosmology, which certainly has theological implications. Any theology that runs counter to the scientific story of creation is going to face an increasing uphill battle. I don't put the books on Goodreads because I forget. That's it. I like join Goodreads and I tried to upload as many books as I could, and then I, I just forget to put them on Goodreads. Robert asks, have you watched the Netflix show Stranger Things, and what plot development would you like to see season two take? Uh, I did watch Stranger Things. I liked it. It was it was fine. I kind of ruined it because I read the seven basic plots and figured out which plot it was and then knew where it was going. Uh, I don't have any preferences on season two. Uh, whatever the filmmakers want to do sounds fun to me. Uh, Coulter Davidson asks, what do you say to a person who refutes evolution by making the irreducible complexity argument where they say that certain anatomical or cellular features could not function with any lesser degree of complexity? Things like the eye, the flagellum, blood clotting area are often cited as irreducibly complex. Yeah, that's just not true. Uh, let's look at the eye. Look at a planaria. They have eye spots, right? They work just fine. They're eyes without lenses. Uh, if we look across the animal kingdom, there's different structures of eye. 
eyes that came from different evolutionary paths. We see eyes in different states of evolutionary development across the animal kingdom. The evidence we see, not even looking at the fossil record, at life today supports eye evolution. Uh, It's a fundamental misunderstanding of evolution. Uh, Benign things aren't filtered out by natural selection. So if you have eye spots and they start to sink a little further into your tissue, uh, but you, they still function, you don't get weeded out. If that happens long enough, guess what? Now you've got a little lens and now you have the uh, potential for a more complex eye. So um, yeah, there's all kind of stuff out there refuting the irreducible complexity uh, argument against evolution. Of the arguments against evolution, I find that one to be particularly not compelling. Mike Krogan says, I identify as a naturalist and a pantheist rather than a supernaturalist and a panentheist because it seems to me that to posit a supernatural reality, including a supernatural God, you need to make two claims. One, that you can identify the limits or boundaries of the natural universe, and two, that you can identify something real that clearly originates from beyond those limits. These seem like rather extraordinary claims to me. Nonetheless, I'm agnostic regarding their potential truth, though scientists like Sean Carroll make a compelling case for the unlikelihood of supernatural forces. I'd be interested in any critique you might have of this line of thinking. Thanks, Mike. I don't have any critique that's basically where I'm at. (laughs) Um, I'm open to supernatural accounts and panentheist thinking because of personal experiences, but I don't make those as fact claims. By the way, naturalist, that's someone who believes in natural order of the universe. A pantheist is someone who believes that the universe itself is God. Supernaturalist, someone who believes that the supernatural uh, is a thing. And a panentheist who believes that God is the universe and something beyond the universe at the same time. For those who might be confused by those terms. Uh, Yeah, I don't have any critique there. I think just don't be a jerk about it. We're good. Uh, Stephen and Samantha asks, I'm curious as to why we're attracted to things that frighten us. For example, as a kid, I was obsessed with those paranormal TV shows both fictional and non-fictional, even though I wouldn't be able to sleep and had nightmares because of them. I think most people do this to a certain extent. That's why horror movies exist. I'm just curious what drives us to be infatuated with something that gives us an emotion that no one enjoys having. Well, you do enjoy it to some degree. That's why you do it. Um, It's called neurological arousal. It happens during fear. If you are afraid and you survive, that's gratifying. So you you face these frightening things and you don't die. And your brain says, good job. So you do it again. That's it. It creates a reward loop. And uh, I'm a little envious. Um, I don't get scared of, of scary movies. So I, I'm not especially drawn to them. <laughs> There's no reward loop for me. Uh, Jim asks, what are your thoughts on Unitarian Universalism, both in theory as a positive way for people to come together over shared beliefs about right living in the world, regardless of any theological beliefs or lack thereof, undergirding those beliefs, and in practice, if you happen to have any experiences attending a UU church or talking with UU friends and acquaintances. I have lots of Unitarian Universalist friends. I tried Unitarian Universalist Universalist churches 
during my faith transition was not a fit for me personally. That might have come down to some degree to the demographics of those in attendance. Folks were generally much older than I was in Unitarian Universalism. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I like it if it works for people. You know me on issues of faith. Is it working for you? Is it making you full of love? Is it helping you help your fellow man? Then I am all for it. Mitchell asks, I would love some conversation on dialectic philosophy, some commentary on the Peter Rawlian what and way of belief and the ever so popular utilitarianism. <laughs> These are uh, philosophical positions. Um, it's interesting to say you'd love to have conversation on dialectic philosophy since that's the basis of dialectic philosophy. It's interesting. It's fun. Um, it's a great way to figure out what to study via empiricism and the scientific method. <laughs> uh, I've, as you know, I'm, I question philosophy's ability to discover truth with a high confidence of belief when compared to the sciences. Um, so I tend to be a philosophical utilitarian. Not that I don't enjoy philosophical discussions of all kind. I just don't think what happens at the end of it is a truth claim. It's uh, something that warrants further investigation via the sciences. Hence, Science Mike. Uh, Daniel says, I recently read A Universe from Nothing by Lawrence M. Krauss. In it, he describes the concept of vacuum energy and how particles just pop into existence because they have a negative potential energy. I had a really hard time following the book and understanding the concepts since you do such a good job of breaking down complex subjects for less mathematically inclined individuals like myself, could you please explain the concept of vacuum energy and the ideas behind our universe possibly being uh, instanced, <laughs> instantiated from nothing? Thanks so much for your work. Um, I will say, I would highly encourage you, now that you've read A Universe from Nothing, to wait a week or two and then read it again. And you're going to find that you understand it much better. I did not understand a lot of that book the first time I read it. So I waited a while and I read it again. Some of those chapters I read three or four times in a row. Uh, that's some heady stuff in there. I haven't, I haven't prepped, so I'm trying to figure out how to do this question justice without a 40-minute answer. Okay, Vacuum energy comes from field theory, the idea that we have all these fields in physics. The idea here is that every particle is a manifestation of a field, a field that fluctuates above a certain threshold creates a particle. And some of these interactions can be complex. So when you get a field interaction that allows an electron to exist, that interacts with a second field called the Higgs field that allows that particle to have mass. So in a vacuum, you still have the fields. The fields are everywhere, and they're fluctuating. And occasionally, they fluctuate enough to create a particle. And based on the way the mathematics of the thing works, I don't have a non-mathematical explanation. That particle essentially can't be created for free. Uh, so a corresponding antiparticle appears as well, and they annihilate. And as long as that happens briefly, no laws of physics are broken. I don't know that that was a particularly much more helpful explanation, though. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jason Swanson says, Could you explain how you use conversation trees and loops? I'd love to know what practical systems 
you use in order to clarify your own thinking and communication. I sometimes can't tell if you're making a clever joke about how your thinking resembles a computer programming or if you actually have a massive database of possible conversations stored in the cloud. If this is an actual practice and you use and not just a metaphor, any books, recommendations, or links would be very appreciated. And lots of favorites on that one. It's not a joke. It's not a metaphor. I literally draw out trees of directions conversations could take, things people could bring up, and responses I could make. This comes from a discipline I've had my entire life that I haven't read anywhere. This is just a thing I do where I spend a lot of time imagining conversations. So uh, as a nerdy kid, social graces didn't come easy to me. So, And I'm not especially quick-witted. So I just prepare a lot of material ahead of time to try to imagine any way a conversation could go. I've done that my whole life, so I'm pretty good at it. And if it's an especially important conversation, like a liturgist podcast, I do something called a conversation tree. I use some software called MindNode, and I start at the beginning of the conversation, and it has these branches with different ways the conversation could go and different things I could say about it. Because the problem for me is I've read so much, I sometimes have difficulty remembering a particular thing that's relevant to a topic, so I go ahead of time and think of everything I know relevant to the topic through mind mapping. And my mind map just happens to include conversational cues. And in my experience, a very high percentage of the time, 80% or more of the conversation is in my conversation tree. And I kind of often know where people are going next. I don't have a book or a resource to send you. This is a discipline I've developed kind of on my own. Uh, I've sent them to... Michael Gunger a couple times before we recorded an episode and they were so confusing to him that it kind of paralyzed him for his part of the conversation because he couldn't tell where I was going next because the trees are based on branching probabilities. So yeah, that's really not helpful. That's just, that's just the truth. Uh, I, I don't know how to teach you how to do it. It's something I've kind of, kind of worked on my whole life. Allison asks, as you learn more about the world, And the impact of our everyday choices, how do you keep anxiety at bay? It seems like no choice is ever the right choice in light of increasing knowledge of our actions. Food is a great example. I could eat less meat, but then I am eating grains from a monoculture farm that is destroying our soil fertility. I could pay more for farmer's market food, but then am I wasting my very limited monetary resources, which could also contribute to charitable causes? It seems every decision comes at a cost to our planet, our health, or our fellow humans. And at times it makes me want to stop learning because this all seems so impossibly overwhelming, making good choices, that is. How does someone live their life without succumbing to the anxiety of the knowledge that you're contributing to many of the ills and problems of the world simply by existing? And many people hit the favorite button on that question, Allison. So you are not alone. I totally get where you're coming from. When I started to learn more about racism and white supremacy, kind of coming from a colorblind perspective, I felt really disempowered for a while. I had trouble watching any media because there's so many white lead actors and actresses and supporting roles. And then every time I saw... 
a person of color, especially a black person, they were either a villain or a guide who simply existed to further the, the spiritual journey of the white protagonist. Drove me nuts. So I couldn't enjoy media. So what are you going to do about that? As you said, you know, what we eat. Oh, man, what a choice. So the first thing you realize is there's no such thing as a perfect choice. Absolutely every action you take has pros and cons. And you're not smart enough to pick the absolute best choice every time. Maybe even not most of the time. So what can you do? Your best. That's it. You can only do your best. So don't worry so much about it. If at all. Do your best. So there's this beautiful thing. You care. You're already ahead of so many people. You care about your impact on the world. Take a moment, Allison. Pat yourself on the back. Look at yourself in the mirror and say, it's good that I care. I'm proud of myself for caring. Affirm yourself in the action of caring. And then realize it's a joy to learn because it helps you make a better choice than you would have made otherwise. And that's the best you can do. Eating less meat is great because if you eat meat, what do you think they're feeding the cows? A monoculture. So by you eating plants, you're contributing less to agricultural monoculture than you are when you eat meat, simply because less cropland is required. You could grow some of your own food, if possible. You can shop from local farmers, uh, and that does cost more money. But there's other places you can trim your budget. Food's important. I think. I think how you spend on food. That's a that's a that's a fine place to splurge, especially if you're doing so in ways that help your local economy and support a healthier earth. Trim somewhere else. You know, buy less stuff. Buying stuff from Amazon is you know getting it shipped all over. All these things are, are pretty bad for the planet. So buy less things um, and then contribute to, char- to charitable causes or donate your time and your energy to charitable causes. There are lots of worthwhile organizations in your community that have trouble finding enough hands to get the work done. And they would probably appreciate your hands even more than they would appreciate your donation. Do what you can. Leave the world better than you found it. It's all you can do. Stop worrying. Stop worrying. Enjoy learning. And when you feel discouraged, when a new insight paralyzes you instead of frees you up, simply stop and say, I'm learning, I'm growing. There's a lot to process. Go for a walk, go outside. Get together with some friends and drink too much red wine. Do something that makes you appreciate the gift of life that we have on earth. Like, why would we want to protect the planet if it's not worth being on in the first place? Hey, everybody. This is Greg, producer of Ask Science Mike. Because of the unique format of this week's episode, it's running a lot longer than normal, almost twice as long. So what we decided to do is to break it up into two episodes so we can have more Science Mike next week as well. We'd like to thank you for downloading and listening. 
and we look forward to seeing you next week for more Ask Science Mike. 